0: Welcome to Inside My Canoe Head, a podcast about self-reliance and resilient lifestyle. My name is Jeff, your host, and today we have episode number 002 of our series on individual emergency preparedness. Today's episode is entitled, Why Are People Not Prepared? So let's get to it. All right, from our last episode, you remember we we geared everything around one key question. Who is responsible for your outcomes? And the concept behind that question was simply saying, are you a person who believes in victimization and that things in the world happen to you? And therefore, it is somebody else's responsibility, the site or the situation that you're in. Or are you somebody that accept, you know, things happen in life or my outcome, whatever that may be, is a result of my own decision making and, and therefore is my responsibility to ensure that my outcomes are the positive ones which I wish to have. It's exceptionally important to remember that part and the definitions that we've touched on about government and Remember, that section was simply there to just tell you, hey, listen, in a Canadian context, the federal government's really done some significant thinking about this. They've looked at all the different avenues. They've got relationships built. They've got committees built. They've got a normally operating government structure that reflects the standard achievement goals that are in government type speak documents. We want relationship building. We want people to be working on strategic documentations, working towards this certain outcome that will see a much more cooperative and collaborative environment. And these documents, all that means is that we've generated the need and the interest to hire a large number of public servants to ensure that there's a lot of meetings and a lot of discussions. Today on Inside My Canoe Head, we are going to look at the demographics. We're going to look at a historical focus. Why are people not prepared? What has the data said? When did this begin? Why are people in the way they are? We're going to touch a bit on vulnerable communities. We're going to talk about individual resilience, community resilience, and then we're going to give you a heads up on next week's episode. So when we look at demographics, we have to look from a literature and a intelligent point of view because there has been about 35 to 40 years of significant work done in the fields of sociology, psychology, a little bit in anthropology about how humans make decisions and why this is important for individual emergency preparedness. You kind of have to look back through the past and look at the data that we have to try to understand why people get into a position why they're not prepared. It's not that people are dumb, it's not people that don't care, it's that It's not that it's such a complex subject that it is beyond the normal person's ability to comprehend the variables that are involved. That is obviously not true. So let's understand why people aren't prepared in today's world. We understand that households that are not adequately prepared for the threats they face, they thereby place an additional burden on the municipal resources allocated to a disaster or an emergency response. And then when we look across studies in the United States, Europe, Africa, Canada they pretty much unilaterally indicate that household preparedness levels are somewhere between 17 and 48 percent and they don't go any better. So you ask, how do you determine that? Well, it's against the list. And you see these lists that are published by various different agencies from ready.gov in the U.S. to the Be Prepared program in Canada through Public Safety Canada. If you look at the websites of pretty much every provincial emergency management organization, municipal uh, emergency management organization, Or organizations such as the Red Cross that are involved in some type or even the Salvation Army for that matter, they're involved in some type of disaster and emergency response. They all have a standard checklist. So what researchers do is they take the standard checklist uh, when they're looking at an American county in Florida. And they'll take the county list, they'll take the Florida list, and they'll take the FEMA list. And then they'll ask people what their level of preparedness is, and a bunch of questions designed to determine how well they meet that established list. So that's how you get a figure of 17 to 48%. They're just not randomly saying, are you prepared? Because... The research shows us clearly that when you look at people's perceived level of preparedness versus their actual level of preparedness, there's usually about a 20 to 22% gap between that. So that means that people are overestimating their ability and their readiness to respond to a disruption in life. And therefore, because they're not ready, they're overconfident, they're not taking the actual preparations that are recommended or necessary because they, they believe they're ready or more than they actually are. Now, when you look across it, it is completely heterogeneous as to what the standard is supposed to be. But I think the one homogeneous agreement that is out there is the figure of 72 hours. And a lot of people ask themselves, why is 72 hours used? And there's two principal research answers to that question. Number one is it normally, in a significant incident, takes a municipality about 72 hours to figure itself out. To secure the critical infrastructure and to begin turning efforts towards individual citizens and their need and their collective needs. So, if we look at it from that perspective, we, and and the next week's episode will touch on that in, in in far greater detail. But right now, just understand that that seventy-two hours is is primarily. Firstly, based upon the fact that most municipalities can't help anybody for the first 72 hours. They're, they're going to be totally overwhelmed in a significant incident. But the second part of it is based on human psychology. And that's the point where apathy kicks in. they need they, A lot of significant studies have been done to examine in the human mind how much you can tell somebody to do until as such time as they just believe the task to be insurmountable. So difficult to, they found in psychology when it comes to preparedness, that about after 72 hours, if you start telling residents to prepare for 96 hours a week, two weeks, the residents will turn that off and they won't actually follow that because the human brain on or about 72 hours is when they just start to turn things off. That is too big. That is too difficult. It's too hard to comprehend. I'm going past. So if you're just wondering why 72 hours is what's kicked out there, that's pretty much the basic. So let's look at factors associated with preparedness. And then basically, uh, when we're looking at factors, we're talking about demographics. So things that we can define in a community to separate people into different camps and then to look at their level of preparedness and compare it with those variables to determine what may be indicators of groups that are likely to have different levels of preparedness. So the first thing that I want to talk about is vulnerable communities because they're an exceptionally important part of our society. Vulnerable communities are essentially broken into two large camps. And they are first those that have a medical injury. And those injuries can be either mental health injuries or they can be actual physical injuries. If you think somebody who's suffering from severe PTSD or somebody who is a quadriplegic, their access to resources is is significantly constrained. The other side of the vulnerable is people that are in certain socioeconomic classes. Now, we don't like to classify people by their cultural basis. We don't like to classify people. But in in times, you actually have to. So you have to look at the fact that certain people earning lower incomes or people from a marginalized cultural or community have less access to resources necessary to react to the information. They also have something called that the Americans refer to is informational poverty, which means they actually don't have access to the same information that everybody else does or not in the same timely manner. So people in vulnerable communities use a much disproportionate level of per capita emergency response capability. So if you look at the amount of the emergency response capability averaged out over a year, and then you look at the amount of that targeted towards vulnerable communities, it is far and disproportionate to the average population. That's nothing to do with the communities. That's the socioeconomic reality and the medical reality that all these people live with. But when we look at the actual demographics, if you want to try to figure out what is positively correlated with preparedness, we basically have four principal factors within the research, and they are income, education, age, and home ownership those are positively correlated. So which means your level of preparedness goes up as your income goes up, As your education goes up, your age to a certain level, and that's about 59 in the U.S., and then it actually levels off and starts to go down. But up until about age 59, we have a positive correlation with level of preparedness and home ownership. So if you're a renter, you are less, you are not positively correlated, but if you're a homeowner, you are positively correlated. In a seminal review done in uh, 2014 by Donahue et al., they looked at 23 notable studies published between 1974 and 1988. They further noted that factors such as marital status, whether children were in the home, neighborhood, and immigrant status have shown to influence the decision to prepare. However, there were some very serious limitations in their data and methodology utilized in those studies, including some sample bias, Bivariate analysis led to more recent research to question the validity of those findings. And that's a lot of the later research that I've talked about in the 2018, 2014, basically Started about 2012, but really in 2014 to 2018, there's been a lot of attention on some of these older studies that go back into the 70s, 80s, and 90s that looked at marital status, children in the home, whether you're an immigrant, your cultural background, high in the literature reviews, is gender. Early studies in the 1970s and 1980s, basically Edward's work, Turner, Nig Paz, and Young's work in 1980, there's significant work done that showed that gender was definitely a factor in determining that women were less prepared in comparison to men. However, what happened was, is they did what's called a bivariate analysis. And it basically says, I'm going to take a level of preparedness, now i'm going to put the women in on one side and put men in the other and look men are 72% prepared women are 23% prepared and they would conclude from that, that that gender therefore affected the level of preparedness therefore women are less prepared the problem is is that when you do bivariate comparison you answer a simple question but you're not actually analyzing the data and interrogating the data to the appropriate level when you do something called multivariate analysis on this on this data what you see is that gender itself does not influence the decision to prepare it represents a proxy for economic status and education so in fact the women are not less prepared because they're women they're less prepared because they belong to a certain socioeconomic status and have lower levels of education when something says women men asian african american white hispanic level of preparedness and say, look, the Hispanics are less prepared, the whites are more prepared, that is a bivariate analysis and it's used a lot in statistical analysis that you see in political work and it's easily defeated when you do any type of data analysis. So therefore what I'm just trying to say is that uh, similar results have been found when you include race, culture, ethnicity, they are not variables that contribute to the decision to prepare or contribute to the level of preparedness, they are proxies for socioeconomic conditions. And therefore, because of that, they're the main indicators. It's not your gender, it's not your culture, et cetera. Uh, Nobody likes to hear that, but that's, hey, that's what the research says. You can argue all you want with me, fair enough, have a great day. This is what the evidence tells us is the positive correlations. And so therefore, from that perspective, when designing emergency plans, You would think that our wonderful friends in government would realize that those are the targeted variables that need to be part of your social marketing campaign for public emergency preparedness. Next thing we want to talk about is individual resilience. Why are people not prepared? And why are people repaired? And a large of it is based upon individual. Remember, I, I keep harping on this podcast about you as an individual, and this is about you. You're in charge of your outcomes. You're in charge of your decisions. So let's talk about your individual resilience. What is your self-efficacy? Self-confidence, for lack of a better term. How do you view that? As an individual, you look at that wonderful, handsome, or beautiful person in the mirror every morning. And are you confident? Do you have a high level of self-confidence and self-awareness? Or do you have a lower level? Because they are correlated to your level of individual preparedness. Do you have access to resources? And I don't don't mean money here. I mean social resources. We call it social capital. But when you look around, when you look at your social involvement, do you have significant social involvement? Do you have a group of friends? Because remember, access to resources, far too often when we look at preparedness, we hear the answer, I don't have money. I don't have time. And as my, one of my favorite people to listen to Tony Robbins says is the question it is never a lack of resources it is a lack of your personal resourcefulness there is always always resources out there look at Shark Tank look at all the different show where, where people come forward in front of venture capitalists and they, they have an idea and they've taken it a little step, but they don't know what to do to take it beyond. It's never going to be a question of access to resources. It's a question of your individual resourcefulness. And this goes back to your individual resilience. Are you responsible for your outcomes or is it somebody else's job to come rescue you? hey, that's an honest question. Look yourself in the mirror, right? Ask it in the morning. Am I responsible for what happens today? Or is everything going to happen to me and then I can sit back at the end of the day with my bowl of ice cream and blame the world for everything that's wrong in my life? Hey, who are you? I mean, that's very important. And that continues on to community resilience. And remember, community is not your neighborhood. So we're, we're, we're not referring to a geographical set of limitations about where you live we're talking about that social capital you have that social context that group of friends those bodies of relationships that you have do you participate in your community and whatever that community might be and remember social capital is a term that i'm throwing out here so i probably should throw a little definition around it if you think about human capital that's education You all understand that, and education is, for the most part, going to be very beneficial to you and society writ large. Financial capital, we all know about that. That's access to money, and that's access to credit, and the financial system around us. But when we talk about social capital, there's three types of social capital. That's your bonding, your bridging, and your linking. So your bonding is those really tight family members and really close friends. You know that old saying, 3 o'clock in the morning? Who are you going to call? Who is out there on the other end that you can call at 3 o'clock in the morning that's going to come to your rescue, no questions asked, and it's going to be there for you. That's the individual. That's bonding. Bridging are these groups that you have. So think about community groups. You belong to a church congregation, a religious organization. Maybe you have a strong set of values and you, you have, you're you a member of a community support group or the Lions Club, or the Rotary Club, and these are people that you count on, and that expands your level of social people that you interact with, and therefore your social capital, because the theory goes with social capital is that you can get access to their resources to help you when time of need, right? So you look at that, and then linking is your social capital with hire. If you're part of a strong community, how does that community link with power brokers. So we look at the municipal level, the provincial level, or the state level, and your federal government level. How are you, through your social interactions, through those organizations you belong to, how are you linked with your government? How do you influence your government? And and all the studies in the world will tell you, and especially right back to uh, Daniel Aldrich's great book, Building Resilience. It came out in 2012. And it's all about an analysis that he did on four of some four major disasters going back to the 1920s and the Kobe earthquakes in Japan. And he looked at the fact that people with high levels of social capital, so people integrated in their society, it is directly correlated with positive increased outcomes, faster, faster recovery and faster bouncing back from whatever the disruption was, whether it was an earthquake or tsunami or some other major disaster that happened. There is absolute proof out there of a positive, a strong positive correlation between strong social bonds and people who have positive increased rapid outcomes in disaster recovery. That's proven. So the idea of individual emergency preparedness is that you are responsible for your own outcomes. You are the one who's going to make yourself successful and you're going to access the information and the resources that you need But to then exponentially increase your likelihood of a positive outcome in the face of a disaster, you need to have strong social capital ties. You need to be leaned out and working with other people, part of the community, etc. Out of today's episode, I hope I did a great job of explaining to you all the demographic indicators that have a positive correlation with preparedness. And you'll see that each one of those is within your control. Your decision to home ownership or not. Your decision to have a great education, a good education, or some education or not. Your strive to earn a better quality of life through a higher income level. Good. You're going to age whether you want to or not. So there's a positive correlation. If you're post-60 at this, well, you have some other considerations to do. I myself am turning 50 this year, so I'm not far off that age, no longer being coordinated or correlated with that. So I understand that. And then we wanted, we talked a bit about individual resiliency, and it talks about, you know, there, there, there is a key relationship. Not only are you responsible for your outcomes, But again, it's about your self-confidence, whether you view yourself capable of handling things that are going to come your way. When problems come your way, are you that type of person? And if you're not, you have to be introspective and start looking at things. So You'll see right from the first episode that we talked about and through this episode, we haven't yet talked about a single kit list that you need in your house or a level of equipment or a set of skills that you need to have. No, no, because individual emergency preparedness is by far first You, your attitude, and your belief systems that support you as an individual and how you interact with society. That is going to be far more beneficial to you than any kit and equipment. And with that, next episode is going to talk all about no one is coming to help you. We're going to do a frank and honest assessment as to the limitations of government capabilities to come rescue you in a significant incident that happens in your area. And when I go through this, you'll understand why the importance of individual emergency preparedness, because it's not a good day when you call 911 and you get a, sorry, we can't help you right now. We're going to put you in a list and hopefully somewhere in the next 48 to 96 hours, we can dispatch somebody to check, you know, if you're still alive or something. And so the next episode, no one's coming to help you, You're on your own, my friend, so you better get prepared. And then the fourth episode in this series, just to give you a quick peek forward, is all about becoming prepared. What are your first steps? So once we get through your understanding of the importance of your attitude, the importance of why people are not prepared, and wondering, this is all about your self-efficacy and your confidence in the world and your responsibility. We're going to demonstrate just how little your government can actually do to help you in the fourth episode. We're going to hit on, okay, now that you understand all that, what do we do next? So thank you very much for joining us here at Inside My Canoe Head, and I wish you all the best and see you on the next episode.